Welcome back to the listener's commentary on Luke 15. We're continuing our study through this chapter that really is one tight unit. We just broke it into two chunks for the sake of space and time. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus is answering a complaint of the Pharisees and the scribes that he's welcoming tax collectors and sinners, and even worse, he's eating with them. And for them, that just obviously puts Jesus on their level. He must be a sinner as well. He certainly couldn't be a righteous teacher, because look at who he's eating with and look at who he's responding to. And so the Pharisees are complaining about that, and Jesus, in response, tells three stories. So in our last session, we looked at the first two stories, the story of the lost sheep and the story of the lost coin. In those cases, it was one sheep out of a hundred and one coin out of ten. In this recording, we're going to look at Luke 15, 11 through 32, which is the well-known story of the prodigal son. And this particular story is not about one out of a hundred or one out of ten. Now it's one out of two. One son out of two takes off. And how will his father respond to that? So this story, along with the preceding two stories, intends to challenge the the Pharisees' prevailing view of God in relationship to sinners. He doesn't love them. He doesn't welcome them. He looks down on them just as they do. And so Jesus is intending to shift their picture of God. What is God like? And what is God specifically like in relationship to sinners? Well, here is part three of that discussion, the third story, the parable of the prodigal son. And notice how the parable opens, verse 11. And he, Jesus said, a man had two sons. That's how the story begins. And so although we typically call this the parable of the prodigal son, it's really about the father. Jesus focuses on the father's dealing with his two sons. The parable is about how the father responds to both of them. And so it's not even just about the younger son, the more well-known son who runs off into the far land. He's got two sons. And we're going to see the father's response to both of them in this story. So this father has two sons, and here's what happens. Verse 12, the younger of them, so the younger son, said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that's coming to me. Give me my share of the family land. As the younger son, by inheritance laws, he's entitled to one-third of the family estate. The older son, since there's only two of them, would get two-thirds of the estate. And so this son is coming and asking for his third of the family estate which is a massive disgrace to his father by requesting his inheritance while his father is alive and well and in good health. In essence, he's wishing his father were dead. In fact, Kenneth Bailey, who we've mentioned several times in this commentary, who is super well known um, for his work with Middle Eastern culture and how that influences parables and the Gospels, and he spent tons of time with this particular parable, he points out that there's no record in all of Middle Eastern uh, literature or Middle Eastern folk stories of any son ever doing what this son does. In fact, he said for years when he would travel and teach and visit people, he would ask, has anyone ever made this kind of request? And the answer would basically be this, has anyone ever made such a request at your village? Never. 
Could anyone ever make a request? Impossible. Well, what would happen if he did? His father would beat him, of course. Why? Because this request means he wants his father to die. That's how uh, the people of the Middle East responded to this sort of request. It's just an unbelievable request. And likewise, we would assume that's what Jesus' audience would likely assume what would happen. This father has two sons. One son comes and requests for his third of the estate. The assumption would be that the father would beat him, like the people in Kenneth Bailey's experience, right? But that's not what happens. This father doesn't beat him. What does this father do? And so he divided his wealth between them. And when you hear the word wealth, don't think in terms of liquid money, right? He writes him a big check. This is land and this is property. He divides his property between his two sons. Fine. You want your share of the estate? You can have it. Instead of beating him, he actually gives him what he asks for. This is this is like unbelievably uh, gracious. Uh, this son does not deserve this, right? This is not what anyone expect the father to do. This is not what anyone would think a good father would do. He shouldn't have done this from their perspective, but he did it because he's gracious and kind. He divided his land and his property among them. And he's a man of enough means to have land and property to be divided between his two sons. We're going to learn later he has hired hands. So he's a wealthy landowner. He's a man of means, and he divides the family land and the family property between his two sons. What does the younger son do with the family land that he's been given? Well, verse 13. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together, went on a distant, went on a journey to a distant country, and there he squandered his estate in wild living. To do this suggests that he he sells off his portion of the family land. He had to turn it into cash. So we would assume that he sells off his portion of land and turns it into money, which, uh, again, is just unconscionable. I mean, like, this is land that's been in the family for generation, and they've farmed this for years, and now, presumably, he sold it off, turns it into money, and uh, goes to a far country, a distant country. Uh, distant geographically, but even more important, distant culturally. Uh, this is the way to refer particularly to land that's out there in the borderlands, like a distant country would be Gentile country. And so that's where, in fact, we learn later in the story, that's where he went. Um, he goes to the Gentile lands, to a far country, a long way away, where there's people that are different and they live differently. He cares nothing about his family heritage. He cares nothing about his family land. This this young son is about as bad as it could possibly get. Um, in fact, he wasted, he squandered it all in wild living. He wasted it all in wild living. The word wild is where we get the word prodigal. So when we talk about the prodigal son, it's because he wasted it in wild living. He was prodigal. Um, he lived in a prodigal sort of way. And usually we think of that as meaning sinful or immoral. But the word prodigal simply means lavish, wasteful, extravagant, right? In other words, he just blew his money. He bought whatever he wanted. He didn't worry about it. He had plenty because, you know, he had all this money. He, he just spent it on whatever he felt like and, and wasted his money. And 
thus wasted his family inheritance. Well, verse 14 tells us things then start to head south real fast. Now, when he had spent everything, he blew it so much that he has nothing left. Here's what happened. He spent everything. A severe famine occurred in that country, and he began doing without. So he left. He had all this money. He was going to live the high life, and then he just blew it all. He wasted it. And then all of a sudden, a famine hits, and he's got nothing, and he began doing without. So he went, and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and that that man sent him out into his fields to feed pigs, to feed pigs. This is how we know he's in Gentile country. Jews don't keep pigs. Gentiles keep pigs. Jews, you know, pigs are unclean, filthy animals. They're about the worst kind of animal imaginable from a Jewish perspective. And now he's feeding them. He's feeding the pigs. I mean, this is nearly the bottom for a Jew, feeding pigs. Uh, But it gets worse. Um, He is so hungry. The famine is so bad. He's being so well, so poorly provided for. Look what happens in verse 16. Uh, And he longed to have his fill of the carob pods that the pigs were eating, and no one was giving him anything. Now he's really hit rock bottom. He wants to eat the pig food, these pods, carob pods from a particular tree that was a common sort of food. He looked at those and thought, well, I could eat that, and at least I would get some food in my stomach. But it's pig food. It's part of the pig slop, right? Like, the this this young man he's he's about as far gone as possibly any Jewish young man could ever be. He's hit rock bottom. Well, there he is um, in the pig farm, wanting to eat the pig food, and he comes to himself. Verse seventeen. When he came to his senses, he said, "How many of my father's hired laborers have more than enough bread? But I'm dying here in hunger." And so. He thinks back to his father's uh, farm. He thinks back to his growing up years. He thinks back to his family. He thinks back just to the hired workers. He's like, my father takes care of them. They have enough bread. They've got enough food. And I'm, I'm shriveling up and dying here from hunger. So he develops a plan. I will set out and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired laborers. And so this this young man comes up with a plan. He's going to return home. He recognizes he has completely disgraced his father. He's completely uh, dishonored his family heritage. Uh, And so he recognizes he's no longer worthy to be called his son. He's going to ask for a job. Ask for a job. Maybe I could just be a hired worker. At least then... I would make a little money, and I would have enough food to eat. And so his, his this is really his initial repentance. His plan is to head back home and to make it up to his father and his village by getting a job and working for his dad. Some have suggested that, that um, this is sort of like artificial repentance. It sounds like he wants to get a job, maybe earn his way back into his father's good graces and pay him back. Um. I don't know. That just seems in the context of the story and in the point Jesus is making and how tax collectors and sinners are gathering to Jesus, 
that seems a little bit too cynical to me. I think this boy just really wants to go back home and he's at least recognizing I've shamed my dad so bad. I'm not willing, I'm not really worthy to be his son. I'll at least go back and see if I can't get a job and work for him. Uh, It seems like maybe he doesn't fully get everything, sure, and he doesn't understand everything, but he really recognizes he's in a bad way and he's actually, uh, he's done a very dishonorable thing and he's hoping that maybe his dad will welcome him back at least as a hired worker. And to make this decision to return home, to return to his home village, and to return to his father, well, this is going to take a certain level of courage. In an honor and shame culture such as uh, Jesus' culture, like he has so dishonored and brought so much shame to his family, to his village, that there's got to be some trepidation as he makes this plan to return. Um, he can expect hostility. He can expect disgrace. He can expect possibly rejection at the edge of the village, right? The audience listening to Jesus' story would have all these emotions going in them about this kind of person who did this not only to his family, but did this to his village and brought such shame on his village. And so this sort of decision that this young man makes to go home, well, it's going to come with certain trepidation, certain fear. What, what's the treatment going to be when he comes home? But he, he decides it's worth the risk. He's going to head home because things with his father are so much better than what he's experiencing on his own. And so verse 20 He sets out, and he came to his father. He sets out to go to his father. But while he was still a long way off, and so he's down the road from the village, he's still a long way off. When he was a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And so This son is making this decision, expecting a certain level of hostility and rejection and disgrace when he comes, not really sure what kind of welcome he's going to to get. And how does the father respond? Well, the father responds not by disgracing the son and humiliating the son because of the shame he's brought on the family and the shame he's brought on the village. No, the father disgraces himself and humiliates himself to welcome home his son. How does the father do that? Well, the father does that by running to his son on the outskirts of the village. He runs. Now, that may not seem shocking to us, but in their cultural context, uh, older, dignified men walk. In fact, um, for example, the wisdom of Ben Sirach, verse, uh, chapter 19, verse 30, actually says that the importance and status and prestige of a man was marked by how slow and dignified he walked. But this father, this father pulls up his robe and sprints to his son. And so he disgraces and humiliates himself in public before the whole village to welcome home a disgraceful, dishonorable son. What's God like? What's God like? Well, Jesus thinks God is like this. And notice what moved him to do it. The father saw him, so he's looking for him and watching for him and eager for him, hoping he'll come back. He saw him, 
he felt compassion for him. And so he's moved by compassion. He's moved by care and concern for the well-being of his son. And he ran to him. And not only does he run to him, but when he got there, he embraced him and he kissed him. Here is this poverty-stricken son who his last stop was a pig pen. And this father doesn't care how he smells, what his clothes look like, how disgraceful and dishonorable he has been. He not only runs to him, but when he gets there, he hugs him and he's welcoming him with the kiss of greeting. And all of this is incredibly public. Right before the eyes of the watching village, the whole village who would have felt a sense of shame and dishonor themselves at the way this son treated not only their, his family, but an important member of their village. And so they were dishonored as well. And that's why Kenneth Bailey suggests that perhaps the father knows he needs to beat the town people to the son or he'll never have the chance to restore his son to the family and the village, right? Like they're likely to greet him with public outrage and maybe insults, maybe even some rock throwing, right? Like maybe even a, a public ceremony where he's not welcomed in the village. It's possible possible that the father knows that that is a likely thing to happen and he knows he needs to be the first one there and maybe that's why he runs. So he welcomes him publicly before the eyes of the watching village and he welcomes this son back to himself. Well, the son knows uh, he's got a speech all prepared. He knows what he's come to do. And so he says, verse 21, to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And I suspect that the restatement of this and Jesus telling the story is to emphasize the, the sense of humility and lowliness that this son uh, feels for his behavior. This is his statement of repentance. Perfect or imperfect, whatever, doesn't matter. This is his statement of repentance. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He knows that what he's done is wrong. Um, but the father cuts him off and the father doesn't let him finish his speech. He interrupts and the father said to his slaves, so he says to his servants who are now there, right? So people have gathered around. There's a crowd gathered around. So the father said to his slaves quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. That would be the father's robe, most likely his dress robe. It, it is a symbol of his nobility and status. Get my dress clothes, in other words. Let's put it on him, probably because his clothes are in shambles. So bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his fingers and sandals on his feet. Um, again, the ring is most likely the symbol of the family, the signet ring of the father that represents his status and his authority. And so this is, again, restoring him to the family. And sandals on his feet distinguishes him from the poor and the slave. Let's get some sandals. Let this, let's get this kid dressed in the attire of a family member. That's the idea here. So all of this is to restore him and his honor in the family. So it restores him to his family and it restores him, therefore, publicly in the eyes of the community. This son has been fully restored. But that's not all. Verse 23, and bring the fattened calf, slaughter it, and let's eat and celebrate. A fattened calf is the kind of um, animal that you use for a massive party, a big celebration, at least 100 people. It's the kind of banquet you would prepare when 
when the governor comes to town or the prince gets married, right? Like this is the kind of thing when you're going to have a lavish, spare no expense kind of banquet. Um, and so let's slaughter the fattened calf. Why? Verse 24. Well, this son of mine was dead and he's come to life again. By leaving and doing what he did, it was like he was dead, but he's back. And it's like he's come to life again. He was lost and he has be, been found. And they began to celebrate. So just like with the sheep and just like with the coin, it's not just enough for the son to come home. We need to celebrate. We need to feast. We need to eat and celebrate. And remember, Jesus is really describing what's happening in his ministry. Why is Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners? Because like this son, they're coming home. They're being found. And it's a reason not to complain, as the Pharisees and scribes are, but to celebrate like Jesus is. And so celebrate they do. They slaughter the fattened calf. They're preparing a feast and they're going to invite the townsfolk. And all of this will uh, restore this son to the community. Well, remember, this father has not just one son. He has two sons. So verse 25, what about the older son? Well, this older son was out in the field working when he came and approached the house and he heard music and he heard dancing. And so here's this older son, um, the older brother of this one who's come home. He's been out in the field. He comes back. The party's already started. There's music. There's dancing. So he summoned one of the servant boys and, and began inquiring what these things could be. He wants to know what's going on. Like, why is there music? Why is there dancing? What, what's, what's this party all about? And the servant boy says this, verse 27, Your brother has come, and your father has slaughtered the fat calf because he's received him back safe and sound. And so he lets him know that the party's happening. How does the older brother going to respond? Well, he doesn't get happy. He doesn't get excited for his younger brother to come home. How does he respond? Look at verse 28. He became angry. That's how he responded. He became angry, and he was not willing to go in to the feast, to go in and celebrate. He's angry, and he's not going to, no way, I'm not going to go into that party. I'm not going to, why? Because his younger brother had dishonored the family. His younger brother had dishonored him. His younger brother had left him to do all the work, right? Whatever it is, he, he is angry, and he's unwilling to go in to the party. And the father, well, the father gets word that the older brother's outside, that his older brother's upset, that he's not going to come in. So again, what is the, the father going to do? Well, the father doesn't do what would be expected of him to do. Notice the second half of verse 28. And his father came out and began pleading with him. Here we have a, an incredible reversal. We thought the story was just about this really bad son, this younger son who ran off and you know, disgraced himself and his family with what he had done. But now we have an older brother who has not left home, but he is now dishonoring his father by being unwilling to go into a party that his father is throwing. And he's upset about that. And his father could have just stayed inside and and said, no way, I'm not going to go out there to that boy. And, and 
That would have been fine. That would have been, in fact, expected. If his son is going to act so dishonorably, then let him be dishonored. He can miss out on the party. That would have been the assumption of the culture. But once again, this father's not normal. This father, just like he goes running out to his younger son when he comes home, he leaves his own party as the host, and he goes out and deals with this older son who's now angry and upset and refuses to come in. Once again, he lowers himself. Uh, and humbles himself to go out to try try to get his older son to come in. And how does his older son respond? Verse 29, and he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I've never neglected a command of yours, and yet you never gave me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him? So, Look how he talks to and look how he talks about his father. He says to his father, look, for so many years I've been serving you. And that's the word serving as a slave. Like I've acted as your slave around here. I haven't neglected a command of yours. Um, So he sees himself as, I mean, he's just like bald face in his father's face, upset. Uh, I've acted like a slave to you. Like you've been like a slave master to me. And you never gave me anything, not even a young goat, so I could have a party with my friends, right? And look how he describes himself. Um, He's like hardworking, and he's never neglected a command. I've always done what's right. Look how he thinks of himself. Um, And look how he describes his brother. He won't even name him as his brother, this son of yours. He won't even identify a kinship with him. And notice what he says about his uh, younger brother, he has devoured your wealth with prostitutes. He doesn't, how does he know that, right? Like he's just assuming that, uh, right? We don't even know that that happened. We know he wasted his father's money, but we don't know if that's even actually accurate. Um, and so as a result of all these ways of viewing people, the older brother can't make sense out of the cele- celebration. He views himself as a servant rather than a son. He views his dad as a slave driver, every command, like he's righteous and he's always done what's right. And he refuses to even accept his brother as family, the son of yours. And so in the end, he's just as far from his father relationally as his brother was when his brother was in the distant country. And here he is now with a wall between him and his father and what's going to happen. Well, listen to how his father responds in verse 31 and 32. He says, son, you've always been with me. And all that is mine is yours. Literally, he's already divided between them. Like, you wanted a goat, you could have had a goat. Like, it's all yours at this point anyhow. You've always been with me. And all that's mine is yours. But we had to celebrate. It was necessary. It was the right thing to do. And it was a good thing to do. We had to celebrate and rejoice. Why? Because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and he's been found. And so, like, son, like, the party is not about worthiness of the son, but about the generosity of the father. Like, we had to do this. This isn't about the fact that the the son, like, is so worthy of this party. The the older brother, that seems to be the way, the only way he can think. Like, I'm the worthy one here and I didn't get a party. And he seems to think that, um, 
this son is so worthless that how could you throw a party for unworthy people? But that's not the point. It's about the joy and generosity of the father who has his son back home. This father can't help himself. He has to welcome home his son with a celebration, not as a servant, not as somebody who's kept every command, not as somebody who's totally uh, worthy, but as a son. This is occasion to sing and dance and celebrate. The son hasn't done anything to show that he's worthy of the party. He hasn't paid back his debt. He hasn't got a job um, and at least demonstrate that he's going to try to get the family lamb back, right? He hasn't done any of that. This party has nothing to do with the son's worthiness. It has everything to do with the father's joy and generosity. He's glad to make his joy and his love overflow to both sons. He's even willing to go out to the older son and say, come in, come in, let's party and enjoy the party with me. And the story ends at that point. And we don't know, does the older son go into the party or not? How does he respond? And that's actually the point. What are the Pharisees going to do? Are they going to go into the party and celebrate with the joy of the father or not? Uh, are they going to rejoice that sons are coming home and daughters are coming home who have been lost and far off and wandered away? Are they going to celebrate or are they just going to stand off and aloof and be angry? Well, there's so much here to reflect on. And I think it would be worth us just spending, right, like tons of time, a whole week just reading and imagining this story and picturing it through the eyes of the different characters in the story and feeling the emotions and entering into the story. That's really the best way, I think, to respond to the story is to enter into it, uh, to imagine it, to feel it, to set it in its context and to think about what it says about us and about the world and about God and how we view it, to think about what it's saying about Jesus' ministry. That's what we really need to do to this story. Um, we need to reflect on the goodness and the generosity of the, the master, the father in this story. We need to think about the self-righteousness and the slave mentality of the older brother. We need to think about the self-serving of the younger son and his unworthiness, and yet the generosity, again, of the father. And we need to enter into this story and let the story begin to shape us, to shape us heart, soul, and mind about who God is and what God is like and who we are and which, which son do we tend to identify with and are we far off relationally, even though we're close physically, or are we far off both relationally and distant physically by the way we've chosen to live our life? And uh, what kind of welcome does God give us? And not only that, what kind of welcome does God give others? And how do we respond to it when God gives that kind of welcome? That's really what this story forces us to reflect on and wrestle with. And so I'd encourage you just to take some time to imagine this story, to picture the scene, to enter into it, to read it regularly, and let this story begin to shape your view of a good and gracious God who gladly celebrates when sinners return home, whether they're, they're sinners who are sinners by unrighteous living, like the younger son, or sinners who are relationally distant by righteous living, but they see that as serving as a slave. Whatever kind of unrighteousness it is, God gladly welcomes sinners home, and he does so with celebration and joy.